everybody. Thanks for tuning in to episode 569 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And if you tuned in last week, you'll know that Daniel Glass did an amazing episode called Black Sounds Matter. And that episode was all about how black musicians not only influenced the drumming world, but also just music and history and, and American history and culture. And this is part two of that episode. And Daniel, being the historian that he is, always has very succinct points, but also has history to back it up and can tell stories and can elaborate on things that that he's talking about. And that's what he does. He's not only a great drummer, but he is an, an amazing historian and always comes with amazing facts and amazing stories. And he just has a unique ability to be able to tell the whole story around a particular time in history, which is really amazing. So I don't want to waste any more time. If you haven't listened to the first episode, go back, check out Black Sounds Matter. If you already listened to that, this is Black Sounds Matter Part 2. I hope you dig it. Hey, everybody. It is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. And today, I am very heartened since I laid down the last podcast, which was the first episode of of this show that I'm calling Black Sounds Matter. And I'm heartened because there's been a lot of amazing change in the world in the last week as a result of the uh, anti-police brutality protests all over the country, really all over the world, um, due to the killing of a man named George Floyd by the police in a rather horrific and callous way, I guess you could say, in Minneapolis. And what's happened in the last week since I did episode one of this podcast is that a lot of the things that I talked about seem to be happening, which is that white Americans are realizing on a a large scale that change cannot happen. We cannot confront this just endless issue of racism that we've been dealing since, you know, the first slaves were brought over to these shores 400 and, um, well, I guess last year was the 400th 400th anniversary, 1619. So over 400 years now. And um, it's it's really been heartening to see. I'm sure many of you have, have experienced the same kind of thing. And we think, well, we've had protests like this before, and then everybody just goes back to business as usual. But it seems that there is a significant shift, meaning that rather than just voice words, white America is actually taking action. Um, States are passing stricter uh, police brutality measures. Um, You know, laws are being changed. But on a personal level, you know, some of the top selling books on, say, the New York Times bestseller list are by black authors or people that are dealing with anti-racist themes. Um, I think, I don't know, it's it's a very wild and unusual time, and I really hope that this positive change that's happening where people are, you know, not running away from terms like white privilege and and white supremacy, which are terms that I personally would have kind of been taken aback by up until recently, but I don't see that as being so threatening anymore. I see that as just being 
a state of affairs that white people have to acknowledge and begin to change on their end. And a lot of what's been said is that it, um, unless white America begins to understand the role that it plays and, you know, in, in this scenario that, that the, the racial injustice is not going to go away. It's a systemic problem. So anyway, um, there's been a lot of great stuff happening this week around that, that I really hope will make for more lasting change in our society. And it's, it's just really about time, you know, it's about time <laughs> that there's more racial equality, that there's more gender equality, you know, a lot of people get upset. Well, why are they protesting? Well, because these problems are endemic and and the people that are in power have to acknowledge them and do something about them. It doesn't mean it's the end of the world. It doesn't mean that, you know, that white men are bad guys, but they've had a lot of power for a long, 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 long time. And um, anyway, I what I want to talk about today is sort of a jumping off point um, in the in the protests and in in recent times, there's been this phrase, you know, I've seen it on signs at the at the protests, um, love people like you love black culture. And I think that's a really strong statement. And so being that I'm a music historian, I feel like it's incumbent on me to sort of talk about black culture, maybe in, in my own particular way. And what I want to do is address three different artists today to actually talk about the black sounds that matter, um, to not simply talk about what's happening today, but to look at uh, the history of African-American contribution to our popular music and how, in particular, you know, we're talking enormous earth-shattering contributions. Uh, I, I always like to say that, you know, one of the reasons why American music becomes the world's popular music generally. And if we go all the way back to the time of ragtime, which really was the first time that African-Americans were allowed to participate in American culture in a, in a, in a big way. And that sort of happened around the 1880s, 90s, really around the turn of the century. If we go back, you know, to that time, we see that and we think about things like the blues, which, of course, is the beginning of jazz, the beginning of rock and roll, uh, and so many other styles. We see that African-Americans, um, it's, it's their interpretation of the musical construct, European musical constructs, right? So slaves were brought over here. They were forced to uh, abandon all of their their own culture, their own language, their own music, their own instruments, their clothing, their religion. I mean, everything. Everything was stripped away from them. But what could not be stripped away from them was their um, particular interpretation, particularly rhythmically, of, of music. And so, as they were forced to adapt Western music, Christian music, um, and musical rules and musical instruments, they just began to interpret those things in their own way. And that has just continued um, right up to this very day. And I think it's the reason why the music that comes out of the United States is so unique. And of course, not all music, you know, all of our popular music is is African or African-American in its, in its nature, its heritage, but an enormous part of it is, enormous part of the world's popular music is. So, you know, Today, what I'd like to do is to give credit to three African-American artists. Obviously, we know about important African-American artists, but 
these three are ones that you may not have heard of, and you might find their stories interesting. I certainly do. And they were, um, they were influential on a on a scale you can't even begin to imagine. And yet, their um, contributions have, have gone relatively unheralded. And so, I want to celebrate those three artists today. And before I do that, I want to talk about sort of one more idea related to, um, you know, African-American culture, African-American contributions, Black contributions musically. And I wrote a, and specifically related to drummers, since most of the people on this podcast listening are drummers. So in my, my book that I wrote with Zorro, The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming, of course, that is about Black contribution in the form of blues, particularly from the 19, through the 1940s and 50s, which really laid the groundwork for rock and roll and therefore all the extant styles that came after that as we, as we know them. Um, and I have a section I created called Tracing Our Roots, and it talks about the chain of influence. It's, the char- it's a chart, and it's called Six Degrees of Baby Dodds. Basically, I take three drummers from different eras with very different styles, and in less than six degrees, I trace them back to Baby Dodds, who, you know, many people consider to be the first really important drummer of the modern era. There were certainly important drummers prior to Baby Dodds, and in my research and history, I've 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 talked about them, uh, but Baby Dodds, because he was very pivotal in bringing the sound of jazz out of New Orleans and bringing it to the city of Chicago in the uh, after World War I, he influenced a whole lot of, of drummers. And, uh, you know, people like Gene Krupa, uh, Dave Tuff, George Wetling, um, famous drummers, Chicago drummers that would go on not only to play in the 1930s style, but someone like Dave Tuff actually helped to lay the groundwork for bebop. Um, and what, what came after the swing era of the 1930s. And so maybe, maybe we should say our first artist is Baby Dodds. And, you know, people have heard of Baby Dodds and people talk about Baby Dodds. Uh, but I think a lot of people maybe only know the name. They don't know that much about him. So let me just give you one example of Six Degrees of Baby Dodds before I get into Baby Dodds. So, one of the three drummers who I trace back to Baby Dodds is Stuart Copeland. And we think, oh, Stuart Copeland. Great. Uh, American guy living in Britain, played in a punk band called The Police. What the hell does that have to do with Baby Dodds? So, obviously, if we if we think about sort of the first degree of influence, we know that uh, Stuart Copeland and The Police were very influenced by reggae, because when they started The Police in the mid and late 70s, what was happening was what we call the second second wave ska, second wave and, and reggae. Um, there were a lot of Jamaicans living in England, and that sound uh, was was in the air. People like Bob Marley were becoming popular and really taking reggae to to a new um, a new level. So, a lot of the punk bands were very influenced by um, ska and reggae, including The Police, people like Joe Jackson, Elvis Costello. Um, the Clash. You can hear reggae a lot in the early punk music. So 
Here's an interesting tidbit. Ska and reggae, which I talk about a lot when I talk about shuffles, ska and reggae was directly influenced by American rhythm and blues. Um, and I'm going to actually talk about Louis Jordan later, who is one of the key links there. But uh, it, we can, the, the Lloyd Nibs, who's we really is the father of reggae and, and ska drumming, um, ska came before reggae and was was an offshoot, and, and Lloyd Nibs really was the first guy to play some of those rhythms on a drum set. And so he really is the the, the founding father of of Jamaican, modern Jamaican-style drumming. So when he was coming up, they were, you know, Jamaica's only 90 miles off the coast of, of Florida, and they were all hearing in the 1950s and 60s a lot of American rhythm and blues coming from cities like uh, Nashville, Miami, New Orleans, southern towns. And so there's your influence there. We trace that back. Uh, the 1950s R&B was influenced by 1940s R&B. Again, uh, this guy, Louis Jordan, who I'm going to talk about a little bit more today. Louis Jordan, of course, was had really originally started in the big band, uh, the swing era, uh, as a member of Chick Webb's band. Chick Webb, another famous drummer big band leader. Uh, we trace that back to the roots of big band, which uh, the, a lot of the, the drumming style that Chick Webb played really um, came out of Chicago, which was where Guess Who was, you know, in, in the 1920s, Baby Dots, and influencing all the drummers there, who then spread to New York and brought that style with them. So Stuart Copeland and Baby Dots in less than six degrees of separation. Um, so... You know, Baby Dodds, today he gets credit, but in the 1940s and 50s, you know, he, he as I said, he went up the Mississippi with uh, people like Louis Armstrong and King Oliver, uh, who were some of the very first to popularize the New Orleans style of jazz in, in northern cities. And obviously, being African American, being black, he had limited opportunities. And and he was the band leader. He and his brother Johnny Dodds. Um, he was he was the drummer in 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 this guy King Oliver's jazz band. King Oliver is considered even before Louis Armstrong to be the first great um, progenitor of New Orleans jazz in in the North. And influenced all these young white kids who went to a place called Austin High. They were called the Austin High Gang, and Gene Krupa and Dave Tuff being drummers who worked in that scene. Um, But interestingly, King Oliver died a broken, very poor man, and all of the guy, you know, and he died young, and he was working as a janitor in Northern Car- North Carolina, completely forgotten about. Baby Dodds, I believe, stayed in Chicago for the rest of his life. Um, but once, you know, and this happens over and over again, we see once a style that's created by African-Americans or popularized by African-Americans gets kind of co-opted by white uh, musicians, then the African-Americans are cast aside. And of course... Those artists went on to have enormous fame, fortune, popularity, record sales, and made a lot of money um, with that music that they were inspired by. 
So, you know, it's a, it's, it's when we're talking about black sounds matter, I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of these artists that do matter did not get the, the credit, did not get the recognition, did not get the money uh, that, that their influence warranted. Right. And I guess you could say there's plenty of white artists that that's the case with. And yes, I would agree with you, but um, you know, it's, it's hard to underestimate uh, the, the, the influence that somebody like Baby Dodds had. So I want to talk about another artist now. Um, this is not a drummer, but drummers play into his story pretty interestingly. This is a guy, the second artist I want to talk about. His name is James Reese Europe. And around the time that Baby Dodds was getting his uh, chops together in the red light district of New Orleans, which is called Storyville, in the 19-teens, right? The, uh, just to give you a little more background, the, the, the jazzers who went up the Mississippi River on the riverboats to cities like Kansas City, Chicago, and New York didn't do so until Storyville was closed after World War I, and Storyville being the, the very, very thriving red light district in New Orleans where jazz had first evolved, ragtime into jazz. And that's a whole nother story. But um, until that time, that's where, that's where jazz was, was evolving. Sort of like bebop evolved in Harlem uh, after World War II, and it took a couple of years before the rest of the world embraced it, and, and it was brought, say, downtown to the rest, the rest of New York City. Um, but uh, let's talk about James Reese Europe. I, I mentioned that name. James Reese Europe was an incredibly interesting figure. He was a band leader, and he's actually probably older than Baby Dodds, because he, uh, he was born in 1880, and uh, left home to seek his fortune around the turn of the century, 1900. He, he'd grown up in Washington, D.C., actually in an African-American family of means. Similarly to Duke Ellington, who would come along a generation later. Um, and James Reese Europe was intent on making it as a composer, as a musician, and he was extremely talented, and after a couple hard years in New York, he made his way um, up in the ranks and started to become known as a composer. And much like Duke Ellington, a lot of people say, well, Duke Ellington is one of the greatest American composers of the 20th century. Well, James Reese Europe was doing the same thing. He, he used very unusual or uh, groups of musicians, banjos and large number of strings, and tried out a lot of different things. And um, his, you know, he was integrating ragtime into um, sort of that, uh, taking ragtime, which was at, when ragtime first showed up, it was something that was, um, you know, played by either piano players or guitar players or banjo players. It had been invented by itinerant musicians who traveled. And James Reese Europe was maybe one of the first, I mean, there were, there were others, um, but who took the ragtime concept and started composing for larger ensembles. And so he became um, a 
an important figure in New York City. And years before other jazz artists performed, quote-unquote, jazz music at Carnegie Hall, uh, which was, you know, considered for classical music only. Of course, at this time, jazz music was not, con- it was considered, it'd be like having a rapper in Carnegie Hall in, you know, 1970 or something. It just wasn't something that anybody would have considered. And so he organized a concert at Carnegie Hall for the benefit of the Colored Music Settlement School with his band. And although it wasn't exactly a jazz band, they were playing this style of music that would lead to jazz, ragtime music, which was popular all over the country. So um, he then, in the early teens, got hooked up with uh, two society white folks named Vernon and Irene Castle, the Castles, and they were extremely important as jazz began to emerge because they were dancers. They were ballroom dancers, a husband and wife duo, and um, they popularized the foxtrot, for one. You know, you may, may have heard of, of the foxtrot. It was a kind of a rage in the, in the early 19-teens. And Vernon and Irene Castle, again, were white, and so they had the cachet. They were wealthy, they were society people, people were paying attention to what they were doing, and they had the ability to bring this ragtime music, these um, dances, to a broader audience, to a national audience. And they chose James Reese Europe to to work with that was their band leader which again at that time having an african-american band leader was uh somewhat scandalous you might say somewhat shocking for a lot of people but they they because of their you know white privilege or whatever you want to call it they were able to make it happen so james reese europe is playing everywhere with his unusual bands um and Boom, 1914, the country gets involved in World War I. And uh, so um, he, oh, and by the way, I should say he composed many important songs for the the castles, Vernon and Irene Castle. And by the way, in the, I think in the 30s or 40s, there was a, a biopic made about the castles starring Fred Astaire. I'm not sure exactly who played Irene Castle, but obviously it was a very popular movie. Uh, and there was no mention, no mention anywhere of James Reese Europe. So, um, you know, same story. He was very influential. He co-wrote a lot of the songs that, um, that, that they danced to, but no mention of him in their, in their biopic. Um, and a lot of the songs had castle in the title. Um, the castle walk, the castle perfect trot. Uh, there was a song that I, a ragtime piece that I played on my DVD, The Century Project, and it's called Castle Rag. And I think it was written in 1913. So um, their name featured a lot into to song titles. Um, he made some recordings in 1913 and 1914, and... Then he, you know, um, well, I have to talk about this this clef orchestra because he he would do small bands 
that were more dance oriented for the for the castles type stuff. But then he had the Clef Orchestra was had 125 members, and it's like a, a full orchestra except they're playing, you know, Dixieland slash ragtime type music. So maybe what I'll do is I'll dig up there there. Um, I'll put some of his compositions on on the uh, on the in the show notes some links to the to his compositions. So he was uh, commissioned as a lieutenant to go over to Europe during World War One with the very famous 369th Infantry Regiment known as the Harlem Hellfighters, and he actually fought as lieutenant. And then he went to direct a regimental band to create great acclaim. And while over in Europe, he spread this sound, this sort of ragtime brass band. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it was swinging yet, but it was certainly a predecessor to, um, to what would become jazz. Sort of, And he would do things like John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, or... The Memphis Blues. Um, several famous musicians came out of his band who would go on to do incredible things. A guy named Noble Sissel, and also the pianist U.B. Blake, who would go on to write a show called Shuffle Along. That was um, the first production, all all black production on Broadway, written and. Uh, and performed by a 100% African-American cast. That was in 1921. So these guys came out of James Reese Europe's band. So he was very successful, made a big name for himself, and he spread this sound all throughout Europe. Um, They traveled, you know, the band over France, Britain, and played for civilians as well as military audiences. Um, and they would syncopate, you know, things like Stars and Stripes Forever. So they'd start to kind of swing them and make them have that sort of funky feel. Um, the sad, saddest part about this is that when he came back in 1919, um, in February, he was was very excited about taking the idea of Negro music forward. Um, he had had such a great reception there. Obviously, he'd grown up in a country that was so full of racism and segregation. And he was he was very positive. Um, three months later, unfortunately, he was killed by one of his own band members. Uh, sadly, one of his drummers. Um, and thus ended his his life at the age of 39. So it's one of those things sort of like Jimi Hendrix... You know, where you can only imagine what he would have become had he had the opportunity to um, continue doing his thing, his composing, and um, be in that position to reach and influence a lot of people. But James Reese Europe, you know, an incredible, inc- I would love to have seen a show with 125 member ragtime orchestra, or, you know, or how, how they worked that out. I mean, they, they had something like, you know, 50 banjos, uh, 30 banjos, I don't know. I mean, some ridiculous number of banjos alone, violins, um, and I can't imagine how big the drum section was. Uh, anyway, and another of his drummers, a guy named Buddy Gilmore, who's not the one who killed him, I, I think the there was, he he somehow criticized the drummer and the drummer didn't take kindly to it, stabbed him in the neck with a pen knife. And everybody thought he was, it was a minor injury, but he 
he bled out during the course of the night. So, you know, just one of those sad stories. Anyway, so that's James Reese Europe. I'll I'll see if I can put some stuff more stuff about him in the show notes. Um, the next artist I want to talk about, and I guess I've talked about Baby Dodds, talked about James Reese Europe. I want to talk about Louis Jordan, who I have talked about quite a bit uh, over the years. I've written a lot about him in the Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues drumming book that I did with Zorro, the aforementioned Commandments book. I uh, He was an incredibly important and influential figure towards the evolution of, of rock and roll. And uh, he was a obviously also African-American. He was an alto sax player. He uh, got his start. He was a very, very good sax player and singer. Uh, got his start in the band of Chick Webb. And as I had mentioned earlier, you know, Chick Webb uh, was a drummer, was himself very, very, very influential on everybody from Joe Jones to Buddy Rich to, you know, Louis Belson, everybody from that era uh, by the way, Chick Webb also died very young. So another legacy that was cut short. He had a uh, some kind of. Um, he was a. I guess you'd call him a little person. He he had a a, a hunchback, and um, I I want to say something like spinal encephalitis. Although I don't know if that was the condition. So it was even a miracle that this guy Chick Webb uh, played drums. You know, was able to play drums and. Uh, he's a mysterious figure because there's very little footage of him out there. There's uh, a bunch of recordings. He's actually the one who discovered Ella Fitzgerald and put her on the map as a singer in his band. But again, he was African-American. and But he, he was the house band leader at the Savoy Ballroom up in Harlem. And many, many bands would go up and battle him and he, they would always get cut, you know. And by that, I mean, you know, you walked away with your tail between your legs. And uh, the, the Goodman Band, the Basie Band, Ellington Band, you know, they, they would do these big battle of the bands back in the swing era where you'd have two, you know, 20-piece big bands battling it out. Very exciting, I can only imagine. But supposedly Chick Webb's band was the baddest. Um, <clears throat> in any case, Louis Jordan, who I'm, you know, talking about, is was a... Uh, he was an alto player in Chick Webb's band, and he also sang some songs. So, when the swing era, well, when Chick, Chick Webb died, actually Ella Fitzgerald took over Chick, Chick's band, but Louis Jordan felt like he wanted to go out on his own. This is in the late 30s now, when Chick Webb died. And Louis Jordan made a very conscious decision. He was a tough guy. I actually knew one of his drummers, um, interviewed him and got to know him a, quite a bit. His name was Johnny Kirkwood. And he told me a lot about Louis Jordan. Louis Jordan was a pretty rough band leader. If you, you know, if you didn't wear the right colored socks, you would get fined. And if your suit wasn't pressed, you would get fined. And if you didn't play well, you would get fined. And, you know, this, you got to remember these bands all came out of the depression and there was no messing around and they were carting carting around a lot of members at a time when there wasn't a lot of money. But Louis Jordan was, and he also practiced and rehearsed his bands. Um, but he he decided that he was not interested when, when the swing era ended and bebop arose, 
Louis Jordan decided he was not interested in uh, being a, a bebopper. He felt like, you know, and when bebop showed up, it caused a real rift in the world of jazz because a lot of people said, wow, this is great new music and a great opportunity for us as musicians to be ex- express ourselves more and not always have to play for dancers. That was one, that was the bebop side. And then there were a lot of musicians that said, this music is over people's heads, it's too complicated, and it just sounds like noise to me, uh, and I want to entertain people, and that's what I've been doing, that's what the swing era of jazz was all about, was entertaining people. So, uh, Louis Jordan was very firmly in that camp, and he kind of doubled down on the idea of the blues, and put together a small group called Louis Jordan's Timpani Five. And sometimes it was the Timpani Six, sometimes it was the Timpani Seven, depending on how many people were in it. Usually had a couple of horns, guitar, piano, bass, drums. Uh, and of course, Jordan was the lead singer. He also played alto sax. But the what made the band successful was not... The, of course, they were all great musicians, but what made the band successful was that he took the idea of a big band that had been popular, and we're talking about now late 30s into the 40s, and he was able to successfully pare that group down, that type of a band down, and uh, utilize, um, you know, get that same big sound, but with a small group. And the, there's so many reasons. I'm going to try to list off all the reasons why Lewis Jordan is just like, vitally important to all of us. He, so he kind of, invent, he took the blues and turned it into a a blueprint for what would become a rock band. One of the things that he did was added what today we could sort of call a modern chorus to a blues song. So the verse section might be like a 12-bar blues, but then there would be like a repeated refrain, a chorus that, was like a hook. It was a modern day hook because songs didn't really have those kind of hooks in them. Um, the band dressed in matching suits. They did matching dance moves. Uh, you know, it was a very entertaining show. And of course, Louis Jordan was not the only one to be doing this. But if you look at early rock bands, that's what they were based on. They they wore matching outfits, they even all the way up to the Beatles. They had choreography, um, and they presented sort of a very kind of tight show with a small number of members. So he helped to popularize the small group, take this idea of the blues. Of course, all early rock and roll is based in the blues. So he he was the one who kind of laid that, that blueprint down. Um, he had a lot of great musicians in his band who would go on to become legendary. So he was a he was great at finding great talent. Um one of those was certainly there were several drummers. Uh, one of those was a guy named Shadow Wilson, who's now considered to be one of the most famous early bebop drummers. He didn't last that long in Louis Jordan's band because Louis Jordan wasn't a bebopper. And Shadow quit because he was Louis Jordan said, well you're playing too much of that new stuff over my music. But Shadow Wilson was was a was a member. Another drummer who, again, we don't know that much about, but went on to be incredibly influential is a drummer named Chris Colombo. Chris Colombo played with everybody from Louis Armstrong and Billie Holiday, you know, all the way up to uh, 
into the you know 70s 80s 90s he was still playing and he made it i think he made it almost to 100 and chris colombo's son was a guy named sonny payne who most people know became very famous in the 50s and 60s with count basie um so you know this this there is this line of people that came out of Lewis Jordan's band. Um, Lewis Jordan also an, another famous alumni of his band who was extremely important in the evolution of music was a guy named uh, Wild Bill Davis, who was a, an organ player. And one of the cool things about Lewis Jordan's Timpani Five, the reason they called the band the Timpani Five was because it kind of had this some novelty type sounds, and early on in the band's career, they actually had some temps on stage, and you can hear them in some of the songs. So it's kind of this, you know, fun novelty vibe. And one of the other cool things, novelty things they did, was they included organ in their music. Now, of course, organs had been around, church organs, they were associated with with churches primarily, and church music. Um, having an organ in popular music was very unusual. So, you know, Louis Jordan was experimenting with these things. Well, guess what? The guy who, one of the guys who played organ in his band, this guy named Wild Bill Davis, went on to form the first organ jazz group uh, of the modern style, which was, you know, organ, guitar, and drums. No bass player. And that led the way to Jimmy Smith and, and the whole tradition of jazz organ, which is still, of course, important today. It is in a, a holds an important place in the overall sound of jazz. So that came from Louis Jordan. Louis Jordan was also an incredibly important artist, not only musically, but in terms of his his popularity and how he was able to take this small group blues idea, which was called jump blues, by the way, and spread that far and wide across the land. He was an incredibly, um, you know, I said he was the singer, but I didn't say just how an, how amazing he was as a singer and as a, as a, you could even say he really was an early rapper uh, because he delivered this sort of preacher-like rapid-fire style, spilling out these great lyrics. And that combined with these super tight shuffles, you know, and shuffles were the, at the basis of his band, so it was a new, stronger kind of a rhythmic sound. So his rapid-fire delivery, along with the shuffles, along with the hooks, along with the great musicianship, and the tight compositions and arrangements, extremely well-rehearsed, produced this sound that just everybody loved it. And so Louis Jordan took the sound of the blues, which at that point was a sound generally made by black artists for black audiences, And he really popularized the blues in a whole new way, on a much more mainstream level. You'd had blues, a whole period of blues in the 1920s, people like Bessie Smith. So blues had been around, for sure. And there were, every band had like a blues format of the song, 12-bar blues type of thing, 1-4-5. During the swing era, all the big bands had some blues in their set. But what Lewis Jordan did with the blues and the groove, that strong shuffle that he added to it, just gave it a whole new kick. And he was so popular that at the time, you know, it was our, the, the music 
industry was so racist that they didn't even have a proper chart for black music because so many people did not consider black music to be worth charting. So you had, you know, the pop chart, but that was, it was a segregated world. So black artists were not allowed to even be on the pop charts, which is kind of mind boggling uh, to think, but that's kind of the, you know, the segregated world that we lived in at the time. Everything was segregated. Industries were segregated. and It wasn't just cities. And it, whether it was a formal segregation in the South or an informal segregation in the North, uh, it was, you know, everybody, everything was, was separated. The, the races somehow couldn't uh, produce things together. People, black and white artists couldn't perform on stage um, publicly until at least the late 1930s. So, what Lewis Jordan was able to do was, uh, at the time, they had what was called a jukebox chart, because records at the time, obviously people would buy them and play them in their homes, but there were a lot of jukeboxes all over the country. People hopefully still know what a jukebox is. It was a machine that, you know, of course, way before digital anything, jukebox had a bunch of records stacked uh, vertically all next to each other, and and whatever the latest hits of the day, those records would be in the jukebox. So you'd have jukebox operators, and in, in, in bars and clubs and restaurants and diners, you know, those they had diners where there was a little tiny jukebox at each table that when 45 records came along in the 1950s, that became popular. So you could put in a couple of quarters, hit the buttons that you wanted to, and the machine would play your favorite record. Well, obviously these records, if they were played a lot, would get worn out. So, Louis Jordan was called the king of the jukeboxes because he wore out so many, his records were played so much on jukeboxes that, um, you know, that, that they would get worn out more than others and get reordered. And so, that's how they knew how to say what the jukebox charts were. Louis Jordan would travel to places where a lot of other black artists would you know, be afraid to travel. Um, black artists had a really hard time traveling in the South, uh, especially jazz and blues artists. Uh, well, and it, it, you know, it goes on and on. If you guys remember, there was a movie called The Green Book. The Green Book was a real thing. It was a book that if you were an African-American person and you wanted to take a road trip, say, over the summer, or you had to drive cross country, or you were maybe a salesperson, and you 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 know had to be on the road a lot. It was a listing of of motels and restaurants and other establishments that would serve black people, that were friendly to black people, and you would get that book, so you wouldn't you know have to just hope for the best if you were driving around in the South somewhere that you didn't show up at the wrong place where you weren't wanted, or you wouldn't be able to get a meal, or you wouldn't be able to stay in a hotel. So there was a similar idea for African-American entertainers. There was a thing called the Chitlin Circuit, which was a, a series of theaters and clubs, but mostly bigger theaters where African-American entertainers could go and perform where they knew it would be cool and where the audiences would accept them. Um, and so I'm sure Louis Jordan played all of those places, but he was also able to do th- crazy things like in the South, he would do, and I know this is going to sound crazy. He would do a show for, uh, say an African-American audience in the afternoon and a white audience at night, 
Or they would literally put a rope down the center of the room and white people would be on one side, black people would be on the other. All grooving to the same artist. It's, it's nuts. But he was really a huge... He was the number one selling black artist of the 1940s. He had something like 52 top 10 hits. I mean, ridiculous. Um, in, in the book that I did with Steve Smith called The Roots of Rock Drumming, we interviewed 23 artists starting who were around in the 1950s and forward who were some of the, the pioneers of rock and roll drumming. And almost every single one of them, maybe the exception of one or two, when we asked them, what were your early influences? You know, who did you like? They all said Louis Jordan. Oh, Louis Jordan had that shuffle, right? They didn't know who the drummer was, but they were influenced by that shuffle and that shuffle and the blues, those blues tunes, that's what influenced them. And then they would go on to pioneer what we would call rock and roll. Even though I would say, if you listen to Louis Jordan's music, and I really, it's the most entertaining, fantastic music. So much fun. He is so great at delivering lyrics, delivering hooks. The, the grooves are fantastic. So danceable. It's, you know, it's not, he's not a jazz artist. He really is, in my opinion, the first rock artist and really the first rap artist. <laughs> I mean, this guy is so important, you know. But not only these drummers were influenced, but um, over the years, as I've done a lot of research and study, you know, of, of later artists that came, like, say, Ike Turner. And I know he has a bad name, but he was right in there, the earliest days of rock and roll, even before Tina, before he got with Tina in the 60s. Uh, very important, Ike Turner. Little Richard, uh, James Brown, Bill Haley, um, Ray Charles. These legendary artists all said that Louis Jordan was their number one influence. So, in addition to being incredibly popular, incredibly uh, influential on a musical level, and in terms of how he organized his band, in terms of his compositions, in terms of his singing style, in terms of the grooves that he produced, um, it's, it's, it's incalculable how much Louis Jordan affected the music that we know and love today. Um, I'll give you one more example of his influence. So remember I said he had been in Chick Webb's band when he got started, and Ella Fitzgerald was the girl singer in that band. She was only 17 years old. And they did a couple of calypso tunes together, like duets, you know. He, he's, he would sing, and one is uh, called Stone Cold Dead in the Marketplace. Stone Cold Dead in the Marketplace. Uh, sort of sang it with a Jamaican patois. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a funny song about the cheating husband and his wife clocks him with a frying pan and kills him stone cold dead in the marketplace. So... Later on, Louis Jordan and Ella Fitzgerald stayed friends, and they would work together. And um, they would, they actually toured, well, Louis Jordan went down to Jamaica on many occasions. He was one of the few American artists, particularly black American artists, that went to the Caribbean and brought his music there. 
And once again, as I said earlier in this podcast, his influence over uh, acts like uh, the, the earliest ska and reggae artists, you know, they had all, all these people had seen him when they were young kids in the late 40s and the early 50s. He was like a folk hero there. So that influence was there as Jamaican music evolved. Um, so the great tragedy, of course, of Lewis Jordan is that nobody's ever heard of him today. I mean, he literally, I like to say he was the Jay-Z of the 1940s and 50s. And yet, his legacy is all but completely forgotten, unless you like that kind of music. There was a Broadway musical written about his life called Five Guys Named Mo, which is the name of one of his songs. It's a great, great tune. Um, it's sad, you know, when we talk about black culture and how important it is on the rest of us um, and how we should give credit to those artists that really changed the game and set it up so that we've been able to love and enjoy the music that, that we have. You know, and I should mention that Louis Jordan's legacy is not just on black artists, but, you know, those artists then went on to influence people like the Beatles and the Stones and Bill Haley and his Comets and Elvis Presley. Um, I'm a little bit out of chronological order on those, but white artists and, and their and white audiences were just as influenced by Lewis Jordan and brought his vibe into what they did. So, if you get the chance, check out Five Guys Named Mo. There might be a... Um, it's one of those jukebox musicals, right? Where you have a group of, of, of uh, singers, and they, you know, maybe it's some story woven together, but they, they include a ton of Lewis Jordan's music in, in this show, Five Guys Named Mo. And he died, I think Louis Jordan died somewhere around 1974. His drummer that I, that I knew and interviewed, a guy named Johnny Kirkwood in Los Angeles, had played with Louis Jordan a little later in his career. He played with him from 1950 to 1955. And he was, he told me a lot of stories about Louis Jordan. And again, as I said, he, he didn't, you know, he called him the old man and uh, the boss. And, you know, he was a tough band leader, but he is, um, he also respected Lewis. He said, Lewis taught me everything that I knew because of Lewis. I never ended up doing drugs or gotten into alcohol, which of course, as we know in the black community, especially is, uh, has probably been, uh, you know, torn communities apart. Um, obviously musicians <laughs> are no strangers with drugs and alcohol. Um, so Johnny obviously was very, very influenced by, by Lewis Jordan. Um, and he gave me a picture of what they called the big show of 1954, which again, these things we don't know about today, but uh, I believe the, the artists on the bill were Ella Fitzgerald, Woody Herman's big band and Lewis Jordan. And there's a picture of those three artists that I have. And they were playing arenas, you know, they were playing, Five to ten thousand. That these artists were that that big at that time in the 1950s. And what I also encourage you guys to do, I'm going to put up a link to a pretty awesome couple of videos. Lewis Jordan 
uh, from the 1960s when he was still playing, still active. I think he died around 73, 74. But this is from a really groovy show called The Beat. And uh, it's a Southern show. The, 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 the host is a kind of a good old boy, but he's a big fan of black music and the blues. And by this point, Louis Jordan is kind of an elder statesman, but he's definitely not in the mainstream anymore. But these, the band he has, which includes that drummer, Chris Colombo, is incredible. These videos are incredible. You get a, really get a good sense of what his, what his thing was. It's a little bit showbiz, but that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be an entertainer. And in doing so, he influenced the entire course of popular music. So, with that, I'm going to wrap up. I hope that this didn't get too into the weeds, and that you guys were able to enjoy, you listeners, were able to learn a little bit about the importance in history through sort of three black artists, Baby Dodds, James Reese Europe, and Louis Jordan. And I hope we can continue to really appreciate those legacies and appreciate the ongoing legacy and importance uh, and pioneering spirit of African-American artists. And of course, by black culture, it's not only music. Um, Black people are, you know, influencing in so many different areas. Um, But I, I think, you know, hopefully, if I can be in my most positive self, that a lot of those barriers are breaking down for whatever reason. Um, long-standing barriers of, of you know, not only uh, for African Americans, but for or for Black people, but for women, people of, um, you know, LGBTQ um, communities that have been marginalized forever, and tortured, and beaten down, and we need to hear those voices too. So I'll leave it there. I really hope you enjoyed. Black Sounds Matter Part 2 and keep swinging and I will see you the next time on the Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. Thanks so much. There you have it, part two of Black Sounds Matter. And if you want to learn more about about how you can help the Black Lives Matter movement, go to blacklivesmatter.com. That is a great place for resources, places where you can not only get information, but figuring out places where you can help and donate your time or donate your money and things like that. Also, if you enjoyed this, please let Daniel know about it. Uh, He spent a lot of time doing both of these, part one and part two. And again, We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that it opened your eyes to a lot of things. And we hope that it makes you think differently about about not only what's going on uh, in the country, but also around the world. So I hope you enjoyed it. Excuse me. And other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and remember to fight for what's right. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Mm